Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week is part two of the design and build contract. Uh, today's episode meets PC5 of the part three criteria. So last week we covered the contract documents, the obligations of the contractor and possession and completion. And this week we will be covering control of the works, sums properly due, uh, payment, indemnity and insurance, default and termination and dispute resolution under the design and build contract. So as mentioned, uh, please make sure to listen to both episodes just to get the overall understanding of the form and how it operates uh, together. So make sure that you listen to both parts. So let's start with the control of the works. So under design and build, many aspects of the execution of the works and administration of the contract uh, lie in the hands of the contractor. So the intention of design and build procurement is for the employer to have less involvement with day-to-day aspects of the contract, uh, as opposed to traditional procurement. And under design and build, the contractor will have a greater responsibility for the overall coordination of the project. So under design and build, there is no uh, contract administrator, as I mentioned in the previous episode, but the employer is entitled to appoint a person to act as their agent. So if one is appointed and named in the contract, the contractor will be obliged and entitled to treat them as the employer for all purposes of the contract. And the contractor is also required to allow access to the site and workshops to the employer's agent and any person authorized by the employer. Now from the contractor side, the contractor is required to keep a competent person in charge on the site at all times. Although not a requirement to name this person in the contract, it is good practice to establish the identity of the person in charge in a pre-contract meeting and make sure this is recorded in writing. Alternatively, instead of a person in charge, the contractor is required to appoint a site manager and the employer must give written approval of the specific person prior to their appointment and the contractor can't remove or replace the site manager without the written consent of the employer. So the site manager is to act as full-time representative of the contractor on site, and they will be in charge of the works and must attend meetings arranged by the employer when uh, reasonably requested. Now, when it comes to key responsibilities of the contractor, the employer and the architect, uh, starting with the employer's responsibility, some of these will typically involve giving possession of the site on time to the contractor, provide the necessary information as required, define the boundaries of the site, give occasional consents uh, during progress, uh, grant an extension of the contract period when appropriate, review the completion date and issue a practical completion statement, issue a non-completion notice when required, pay or repay liquidated damages to the contractor, issue a notice of completion of making good, appoint an agent to represent their interests if required, uh, have um, other persons perform further work on site with consent from the contractor uh, if this is also required, 
Uh, also, they are required to give instructions on specific matters only and assign the right to bring proceedings. So failure from the employer to provide any necessary instruction, decisions, information or consent may constitute as a default by the employer, which will then provide grounds for an extension of time to be granted to the contractor and then as a result give rise to a direct loss and or expense claim where disruption to the works has been caused. So it can also be grounds for termination if the failure causes a suspension in the works for a greater period from that stated in the contract particulars. Now looking at the contractor's responsibilities, now these tend to involve completing the design, carrying out the work as per the contract standards and statutory requirements, complete the works on time, provide a person in charge of the works, organize the work as they like, object to unreasonable changes in the design sought by the employer. They are also allowed to seek payment for disturbance and changes and seek consent from the employer to subcontract parts of the works. So these are just some of the contractor's responsibilities. Um, there are a lot more uh, under the contract, but um, yeah, if you want to learn more, you can refer to the actual contract form, which outlines their duties. Now, looking at the architect, they can be involved in the design and build process in a number of different ways, uh, such as being a consultant to the employer during the initial stages of the project, and they would be preparing the employee's requirements, outline design and specification as required, and appraising potential contractors and assessing tenders. Uh, they can also act as an advisor to the employer during construction, advising if the developed design by the contractor meets the employer's requirement. They can also act as the employer's agent, acting on behalf of the employer in respect of the construction uh, contract. They can also act as a consultant to the contractor, preparing feasibility studies and design proposals and preparing the contractor's proposals for tender and to meet the employee's requirements. Or they can be novated from the employer to the contractor or through a consultant switch. Uh, I covered the differences between uh, these two processes in episode 43 if you want to learn more on novation and consultant switch. So a key item for architects to be wary of um, under design and build is not to take on a fitness for purpose obligation as it is unlikely that any PI insurance policy will cover it. The clause must always be to reasonable skill and care. Uh, now the contractor's liability under design and build is also limited to that of an architect to the use of reasonable skill and care, meaning that in order for the employer to prove the contractor had been in breach, they need to prove they have been negligent. So looking at the design element of design and build to be developed by the contractor, the contractor is expected to provide the employer with copies of the contractor's design documents. And these are defined as the drawings, details and specifications of materials, goods and workmanship and other documents prepared by or for the contractor in relation to the design of the works. So upon receipt, the employer is entitled to take three alternative actions. They can either accept the design document and return it marked as A, or they can accept it, but subject to certain comments being incorporated and return it marked as B. Or the third action is to make 
comments and require the contractor to resubmit the document with the comments incorporated for further approval and return them marked as C. So in the cases of the documents being marked as B or C, the employer must state why the document doesn't comply with the contract. Uh, key item to note here is if the employer doesn't respond within a specified period, it's deemed to have accepted the documents. So the contractor might send them the pack of information. And if the employer doesn't uh, respond on time, they will automatically assume that the documents have been accepted. So they will proceed with what they have put forward in their contractor's design documents without any changes. So employers must be wary that they need to review these uh, on time and return them with the necessary amendments. So if the contractor disagrees with a the comment, they must inform the employer within a specified period stating that compliance with the comment would give rise to a change and the employer must then either confirm or withdraw their comments. Now looking at the employer's power to instruct, under design and build the employer can issue instructions regarding correcting errors in terms of the site boundary, uh, issue an instruction when requiring a change, when they need to make good uh, or not a defect, uh, when there is a change in the employer's requirements, uh, an instruction for postponement, uh, when requiring expenditure of provisional sums, when requiring to open up work um, or for tests to be undertaken. Uh, they can also issue instructions if work materials or goods aren't in accordance with the contract. Uh, and when requiring a change if the contractor failed to carry out the work in a proper and workmanlike manner uh, and many more, they can issue um, different types of instructions. So in terms of the items I just mentioned, only the employer or the employer's agent have the power to issue instructions and all such instructions must be in writing. So if the contractor doesn't comply with a written instruction, the employer has the right to employ and pay uh, others to carry out the work and they must give written notice to the contractor requiring compliance with the instruction. So the employer then is entitled to recover any additional costs from the contractor and can include the carrying out of the instructed work and any special provisions that need to be made, for example, when it comes to um, health and safety. So whatever work the employer appointed someone else to do, they can claim the costs back from the contractor. Now, when it comes to changes, the employer may decide to vary the requirements after the contract has been signed. So under design and build, the employer can order specific changes, including alterations to the design, the quality and quantity of the works, and also to operational restrictions, for example, access to the site. So the changes the employer is uh, putting forward um, will not um, have the power to invalidate or change the nature of the contract. So the contract will remain the same, uh, nor can the employer make changes after practical completion. So the changes have to be um, minor changes that won't materially affect the contract itself. So a key item to bear in mind is that such changes may result in the adjustment of the contract sum and give rise to a claim for an extension of time or direct loss and or expense. So the employer can add, omit, substitute one type of work for another 
or remove work already carried out, if these alter the design, then the employer will require the contractor's consent. Some typical items that can be treated as a change includes uh, correcting divergence between the employer's requirements and the site boundary, correcting any inadequacies in the employer's requirements, um, any discrepancies in the requirements or proposals, uh, for altering works due to statutory requirements, and for restoration following damage caused by terrorism or uh, other neutral effects. Now, if the contractor wishes to subcontract any work, they can only do so with the written consent of the employer. Uh, design and build includes provisions for naming subcontractors, which can be beneficial to the employer if they wish to involve a particular firm. So if the named subcontractor's employment is terminated by the contractor, the contractor will be required to carry out any outstanding work uh, which can be subcontracted with the consent of the employer. So if the contractor terminated the contract of a subcontractor, they will have to basically pick up the pace and um, cover that aspect themselves or get someone else to, um, to do it instead. Uh, so now when it comes to defective work, if work is found to be defective, the employer has the power to issue an instruction for the removal of the work, the materials or goods from the site, and the employer can issue an instruction requiring a change as a consequence of an instruction with regards to defective work. So if the employer has also issued an instruction for further tests to be carried out due to uh, the defective work, the costs will be taken on by the contractor, whether or not the additional tests proved um, that the work was defective. But the contractor, however, would have the right to an extension of time if the tests showed the work was satisfactory and therefore uh, the employer caused the delay. So basically, if they didn't find, so if the employer instructed the opening up of the works and they didn't find anything wrong with the works, then the contractor has the right to an extension of time because basically the employer wasted their time by opening up that work. So the contractor is then required to make good any defects, shrinkages or other faults which appear and are noted by the employer to the contractor. This notification should take the form of a schedule and be issued to the contractor after the end of the rectification period and the defects noted should be limited to latent defects that appear after practical completion. Now, if the employer decides to accept any defective work, this should be confirmed in writing, uh, given the employer has carefully established the full extent of the defect and an appropriate deduction from the contract sum has been agreed. So once satisfied that all notified defects have been made good, the employer then must issue a notice of completion of making good. So that covers the control of the works. Now let's move on to the next section of sums properly due. So the design and build uh, contract is a lump sum contract, meaning all the work described in the contract documents, including completion of the design to meet the employer's requirements, is to be carried out for the agreed sum. So in design and build, the contract sum is very rarely fixed and typically the final amount payable may differ from the contract sum. 
So design and build allows for uh, fluctuation provisions, allowing for adjustments in the event of changes. So there are a number of supplemental provisions within the contract, allowing for certain elements to be added to the sum. So one covers the contractor's estimates, whereby the contractor, upon receiving an instruction requiring a change, submits an estimate to the employer consisting of the value of the changes, additional resources required to comply with those changes, then a method statement for compliance, the length of an extension of time required, and any loss and or expense required. So once that has been submitted to the employer, both parties must take all reasonable steps to agree those estimates. Another supplemental provision covers cost savings and value improvement, whereby the contractor is encouraged to propose uh, cost saving and value improvement measures relating to the design and specification and or to the program and should result in an immediate saving or saving in the life cycle costs of the project. I'm sure you're aware with the whole V process. Uh, so once prepared and submitted, the parties are required to negotiate and agree on the value. Uh, and that's just some of the supplemental provisions available within Design and Build. Uh, if you have a look at the contract form, you'll be able to see the full extent uh, of what supplemental provisions uh, are allowed under the contract. Now, when it comes to reimbursement of direct loss and or expense, the contractor can be reimbursed for direct loss and or expense suffered because of a delay or disruption or due to general damages for breach of uh, contract. So the contractor can be reimbursed as a result of any occurrence of a relevant matter, which are stated within the contract form, or through the deferment of possession. So other losses are irrecoverable under the contract, although dispute claims can be raised through the dispute resolution procedures to uh, claim these. So the contractor should be able to demonstrate that they have taken reasonable steps to mitigate loss uh, and the losses have been reasonably foreseeable as a result from a relevant matter. Now, in some projects, it may be advantageous to insist on a fixed or guaranteed price, whereby the contractor accepts the risk of all changes in the cost of the works um, due to statutory revisions and market price fluctuations. But this approach, of course, will result in higher tender figures. So contractors tend to allow for some fluctuations and the employer accepts some of the risk as well. So moving on to the payment section of the contract, under design and build, the contractor is required to make interim applications, either at completion of stages under alternative A within the contract form or at regular intervals under alternative B. The preferred method uh, would then be entered in the contract particulars, whether it's um, alternative A or B. So with staged payments, allowance should be made for design work that was completed by that stage. Uh, for periodic payments, uh, provision is to be made for valuation of the design work. So interim payments are calculated as the total amount, depending on the payment method chosen, less the retention and any amounts of advance due for reimbursement. In both payment options, the employer should be careful to not pay for any work that hasn't been properly executed. And if defective work is discovered, the value can be omitted from the next payment. 
So the contractor is paid either at the end of agreed stages or at monthly intervals following applications made by the contractor and the payment will reflect the amount of work that has been properly completed as per the agreed terms of the contract up to the point of payment plus the amount of design work that has been carried out up to that point. So before reaching the total gross uh, valuation, allowance for deductions should be made, including for any defects or costs incurred by the employer due to an unfollowed instruction or for any amount allowable by the contractor in respect of terrorism uh, cover or fluctuations. So these are applicable under both payment options. Under alternative B, the payment should include materials delivered on site, but not yet used in the works. A few implications arise when it comes to unfixed materials and goods. Uh, firstly, such materials that have been delivered to site and intended for the works may not be removed without the written consent of the employer and removal of them would be a breach of contract and the employer could claim uh, losses suffered from the contractor through unauthorized removal. Secondly, unfixed materials and goods either on or off site that have been included in an interim payment will become the property of the employer and the contractor will be prevented from disputing uh, ownership. So subcontractors are also required to include a clause um, within their contracts stating that once uh, materials and goods have been certified and paid for under the main contract, they become the property of the employer. Now looking at listed items, both alternative payment options make provisions for them and allow for the contractor to be paid for materials or goods prior to their delivery to site which are listed within the employee's requirements and their value included in an interim payment prior to delivery to site, provided the contractor has provided reasonable proof that the property is uh, vested in it and if the item is not uniquely identified or required in the contract particulars, the contractor has provided a bond that the listed items are in accordance to the contract and the listed items are set apart or clearly marked and that the contractor provides uh, proof that the items are insured against uh, specified perils until uh, delivery on site. In terms of payment, the contractor has no obligation to pay for any off-site items other than those listed. Now let's look at the payment procedure. So the due date for final date for payment is after the employer receives the contractor's application for payment or the date of the completion of the stage under alternative A or at the monthly date specified under the contract particulars under alternative B. So the application made by the contractor can be made before, on or after the stage completion date or specified date. So the employer must then give the contractor a payment notice stating how much they intend to pay or deduct from the amount applied for in the application. And if the employer wishes to withhold any amount from the sum uh, stated in the payment notice, they must then give a written notice of their intention before the final date for payment, 
by issuing a payless notice, which is to state the sum considered to be due and the basis which the sum has been calculated. So basically, if they issue uh, a payment notice saying how much the contractor will be paid, before that's actually paid, they can issue the payless notice stating that they're going to give less and the reasons why and how they've been calculated. So then the contractor will give the employer the right to make uh, certain deductions from any amount due to the contractor or to reclaim the amounts as debt. But in any case, the employer is required to pay the amount due by the final payment date. So the amount uh, paid shouldn't be less than the amount set out in any payless notice. And if no payless notice has been given, it will be the amount stated in the employer's payment notice or in the amount from the contractor's application. Now, in instances of non-payment, design and build includes uh, several provisions that protect uh, the contractor if the employer fails to pay them such as applying an interest to late payments based on the base rate of the Bank of England. So the interest accrues from the final date for payment until the amount is paid. But if the employer, however, makes a valid deduction following a notice, then the interest wouldn't be due on the specific amount. So the contractor is also given a right of suspension if the employer fails to pay by the final date for payment if, however, a payless notice was given by the employer and they paid the amount set out in the notice, then the contractor can't suspend uh, any work. But to be able to suspend their obligations, the contractor must give the employer written notice of their intention to do so and the reasons why. And if payment is made, then the contractor must resume work and any delay caused by the suspension could be a relevant event making the contractor entitled to be paid for costs and expenses incurred. So following practical completion, the contractor is required to send a final statement to the employer uh, for their agreement. And the final statement will set out the adjustments to the contract sum already made, the sum of amounts already paid, the balance resulting from the two and the basis which the amount has been calculated. So the adjustments will include amounts relating to provisional sums, corrections of divergences, changes in statutory requirements, employer's instruction affecting a change, uh, including insurance, loss and or expense, fluctuations, and any cost and expense due to suspension. So the final statement can even be a negative amount, meaning that payment is due from the contractor to the employer and the final statement becomes conclusive as to the balance due from the due date for the final payment and is also conclusive with respect to the extensions of time awarded and loss and or expense uh, ascertained and the contractor is prevented from seeking to raise any further claims uh, when it comes to these matters. So similarly with the standard building contract, if a dispute arises, the statement doesn't become conclusive until the dispute resolution proceedings are concluded. So that covers payment. Uh, Now let's move on to indemnity and insurance. So under design and build, the contractor is liable for and required 
indemnification of the employer against claims for injury to or death of persons or damage to neighbouring property caused by the contractor's negligence. Therefore, the indemnity protects the employer in that if a party brings action against the employer, the contractor will bear the consequences of the claim and is therefore required to carry insurance cover to indemnities required by the contract. Now, the contractor's liability in respect of personal injury or death of employees is met by an employee's liability policy made compulsory from the Employer's Liability Act 1969. Now, when it comes to damage to property, the contractor is only liable to the extent that the damage is caused by negligence or breach of statutory duty or other default of the contractor or any of the contractor's persons. So the contractor is liable only for the losses caused by their own negligence. Uh, so under design and build also makes provision for the contractor to take out insurance for damage to adjoining buildings where there has been no negligence. If required, this will need to be specified within the employer's requirements and the amount of cover to be entered in the contract uh, particulars. Uh, design and build also makes provision for three different types of insurance clauses, all of which are to be in joint names and coveries to be maintained until practical completion of the works or termination. So option A is for new building work and require all risks to be covered under a joint names policy. This option is to be taken out by the contractor and is for the full reinstatement value of the works and the contractor is responsible for keeping the works fully covered. Under option B, which is also for new building work, uh, requiring all risks to be covered under a joint names policy. So this policy is to be taken out by the employer and must be for the full reinstatement value of the works and the employer is responsible for keeping the works fully covered. And option C is applicable for works carried out to existing buildings and it includes two uh, insurances, both to be taken out by the employer ensuring the existing structure and contents uh, against uh, specified perils. So the process for claiming is similar under all three options, whereby the contractor must notify the employer in writing of the details of the damage as soon as possible. Then once inspections have been carried out, the contractor is obliged to make good the damage and continue with the works. And under all three options, the contractor authorizes the payment for all monies due under the insurance to be made directly to the employer. There is also the optional joint fire code to reduce the incidence of fire on construction site. If this is required, both parties will have to comply with the code and ensure that those uh, employed by them also comply. Then under option A for the contractor or option B and C for the employer, they are required to take out uh, terrorism cover. This can be done either as an extension to the joint names policy or as a separate joint names policy and taken out in the same amount and period as the joint names policy. So the terrorism cover is to protect against loss or damage to work executed and site materials caused by or resulting from terrorism. So parties may choose to withdraw this cover 
and they must notify each other that the terrorism cover has ceased and the employer must then decide whether or not to continue with the works or to terminate the contractor's employment. Otherwise, if any damage is caused due to terrorism, the contractor will be required to make good the damage and the related work is treated as a change. So under design and build, the contractor is also required to carry professional indemnity insurance and the level and amount to be entered into the contract particulars. And then the insurance must be taken out immediately, follow the execution of the contract and maintained until the end of the stipulated expiry period. So that covers indemnity and insurance. Let's move on to default and termination. So under design and build where it's impossible to expect further performance from a party, the injured party may then claim that the contract has been repudiated. So repudiation occurs when one party makes it clear that they no longer intend to be bound by the provisions of the contract. So the provisions in design and build for termination are relatively similar to those in the standard building contract, whereby termination is only for the contractor's employment and not termination of the contract itself. Now, if repudiation occurs, the injured party can accept it and bring the contract to an end. So the employer can initiate termination in the event of specified defaults by the contractor, uh, such as if they suspend work, uh, they become insolvent and so on. Or termination can be initiated by the contractor in the event of specified defaults by the employer, such as failure to pay any amount due, insolvency and so on. In the event of neutral causes, the right of termination can be exercised by either party. So in the event of insolvency or liquidation by the contractor, uh, under design and build, the contractor must notify the employer in writing and the contract allows the contractor with time to come up with a rescue package. So there are three options for the works to be completed following such a notice uh, from the contractor. The first allows arrangements to be made so the contractor continues and completes the works. Under the second option, another contractor may be innovated to complete the works through a true innovation whereby the new contractor takes on all the original obligations and benefits of the original contractor. Or under the third option, whereby the new contractor is novated through a conditional novation, whereby the new contractor renegotiates the terms and is not liable for the works uh, that were carried out by the original contractor. So if the employer chooses to simply terminate, then completion will only be achieved through the appointment of a new contractor of the employer's choice and may require the original contractor to remove uh, from the site any temporary buildings, plant and so on owned by the contractor. And the contractor must also provide the employer with copies of all their uh, design documents and the original contractor will be required to assign the benefit of any subcontracts to the employer. So under design and build, the contractor also has the right in return to terminate their own employment in the event of specified defaults um, of the employer or specified suspension events or insolvency of the employer. So the specified events must have resulted in the suspension of the whole of the uncompleted works 
for a continuous period um, that's been stated in the contract particulars. Now, when it comes to failure for payment, the contractor should be careful that they terminate based on the fact that the employer has failed to pay an amount properly due and not simply the amount which the contractor might have applied for. So if the contractor attempts to terminate the contract on this basis without justification, it would amount to repudiation with serious uh, consequences for the contractor. Now, as mentioned, Design and Build also makes provisions for either party to terminate the contract if the carrying out of the whole of the works is suspended for the period inserted in the contract particulars due to uh, force majeure, loss or damage to the works uh, caused by specified perils or due to civil commotion, delay in receipt of statutory approvals or permissions. Uh, and in such instances, either party may give notice and the employer of the contract will be terminated. In terms of termination of employment of subcontractors, this can only be done with prior uh, consent from the employer and the contractor must complete uh, any outstanding work and this will be treated as a change. And uh, last but not least, let's look at the dispute resolution processes under design and build. So similarly with the standard building contract, design and build refers to five methods of dispute resolution, negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration and legal proceedings. Uh, adjudication is a statutory right and negotiation is an optional provision. So design and build requires parties to decide in advance whether arbitration or litigation will be used uh, and to be entered in the contract. So starting with negotiation, if this method is chosen, the parties are obliged to notify the other of any matter that may give rise to a dispute and the senior executives nominated in the contract must meet and try to resolve the matter. Now, if negotiation fails, then parties may wish to proceed with mediation, whereby a mediator is usually appointed jointly by the parties and will meet the parties separately and together in an attempt to resolve the differences. Then the outcome from mediation is in the form of a recommendation and if accepted can be signed as a legally binding agreement. Mediation is typically the best process to keep relationships uh, intact if the parties don't wish to um, break whatever relationship they have between them. Now, if mediation fails, parties can refer the matter to adjudication, which under the Housing Grants uh, Construction and Regeneration Act 1996 requires parties to construction contracts that fall within the definition set out in the Act to be able to refer any dispute arising under the contract to adjudication. So under design and build, an adjudicator can be named in the contract particulars or nominated by the nominating body identified in the contract particulars. Uh, now, if no adjudicator is named, the parties can either agree on someone or either party can apply to a nominating body. So the adjudicator should be a natural person acting on their own personal capacity and should not be an employee of either party. So the party referring the matter to adjudication will have to give notice to the other party, identifying the dispute or difference. And then the selected adjudicator will set out the procedure to be followed 
and reach a decision giving reasons for it if requested by the parties to do so. So then the adjudicator's fees can be paid between the parties unless it's been agreed that the adjudicator will have the power to award uh, costs. So the adjudicator's decision will be final and binding uh, on the parties unless referred further to arbitration or litigation. So if the matter is then escalated to arbitration, with arbitration awards um, are enforceable by law and if arbitration is selected over litigation, this should be stated within the contract particulars. So the party that wishes to refer the dispute to arbitration must give notice to the other, briefly identifying the dispute and requiring the party to agree to the appointment of an arbitrator. So upon appointment of the arbitrator, the parties must send them uh, and to each other a note indicating the nature of the dispute and uh, amounts in issue, the estimated length of the hearing if required, and the procedures to be followed. The decision uh, will then depend on the scale and type of dispute. And a key item to highlight is that any dispute referred to uh, an adjudicator may be referred to arbitration if this is required by other party. Now, when it comes to litigation, it should be set out in the beginning whether arbitration or litigation is to be used in the case of a dispute, and the preferred process should be stated within the contract before tender documents are set out. So both processes give rise to binding and enforceable decisions and tend to be lengthy and expensive. So litigation cases in construction are usually heard in the Technology and Construction Court, whereby a judge will hear the case and issue a decision. Uh, the advantage of using arbitration over litigation is that the proceedings are kept private and under arbitration, the process is chosen by both parties consensually and they are free to agree on timing, place, representation and the arbitrator. Whereas with litigation parties, um, the parties will have to wait their turn at the high court and they have no say over timings, uh, place and so on. So that concludes the full extents of the design and build contract. And to sum up what I discussed today, uh, there is no uh, contract administrator in design and build. So the employer is entitled to appoint a person to act as their agent and the contractor is obliged to treat them as the employer for all purposes of the contract. The contractor is also required to have a person in charge on site at all times. Uh, the contractor also has the same liability as an architect to use reasonable skill and care due to their requirements to design um, parts of the building works. The employer or employer's agent have the power to issue instructions to the contractor uh, now, if the employer wishes to vary the requirements after the contract has been signed, this will be classed as a change, but such changes may result in the adjustment of the contract sum and give rise to a claim for an extension of time of direct loss and or expense from the contractor. The contractor can be paid either at the end of agreed stages or at monthly intervals following applications made by the contractor and the payment will reflect the amount of work that has been properly completed as per the agreed terms of the contract up to the point of payment plus the amount of design work that has been carried out. Following practical completion, the contractor is required to send a final statement to the employer 
for their agreement, setting out the adjustments to the contract sum already made, the sum of amounts already paid, the balance resulting from the two, and the basis which the amount has been calculated. The contractor is also expected to take out insurance with regards to the works, and there are three types of insurance clauses available under design and build. Both parties uh, can terminate employment, and design and build refers to and follows for the adoption of five methods of dispute resolution, including negotiation, mediation, adjudication, arbitration, and legal proceedings. And that concludes design and build contract. So if you want to learn um, more in depth about the contract form itself, I would definitely refer you to read the full form uh, just to familiarize yourselves with the clauses uh, and also to read the guide to JCT Design and Build Contract uh, 2016 by Sarah Lupton. It's a very uh, extremely useful book um, if you want to learn more about design and build. And that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more Part 3 with me time.